To ship, of course. Welcome to the Ship Show, the podcast where we talk build engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng on Twitter, and it's SoberBuildEngineer.com. Welcome to episode 29, a continuation of our panel discussion from episode 28. It's a bit fitting that the discussion is with Netflix, since we sort of pulled a part one cliffhanger, and uh, this is part two. We're going to be talking about some of the technology behind Netflix and some of the tooling they use on their release engineering and management side of the house. Uh, But before we get to that, we've got a couple of very quick announcements. I just wanted to mention that uh, FlowCon is still coming up. It's November 1st here in San Francisco, and we do have that discount. You can use the word SHIPSHOW when registering to get a 10% discount. We also wanted to mention that there will be a configuration management dev room at FOSDEM this year. FOSDEM is, of course, the open source developers meeting in Europe. Um, There's actually going to be a dev room that a bunch of people are putting together at FOSDEM, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then also there's going to be configuration management camp EU, uh, which is a quick train ride from FOSDEM, and they'll both be held in early February in 2014 in Belgium. And right now they're doing calls for papers. So if you have a topic on configuration management you'd like to present, it's going to be a vendor-neutral space. Both Chef and Puppet are going to be there. So go ahead and check that out. Again, we'll put the links in the show notes. And of course, we'll have more news and views for you for episode 30. So without further ado, part two, the technology of releasing software at Netflix. back to the ship show. So as I mentioned before the break, uh, this is part two of the Netflix panel that we had. You can listen to episode 28 for part one. The panel was Justin Ryan, Gareth Bowles, and Bruce Wong, all of whom work at Netflix. Justin and Gareth work in their uh, engineering tools team, and Bruce works uh, on the site reliability side of the house and streaming reliability and is a consumer of the tools. And so part two of the panel I a, we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, actually some of the specifics of the tooling because we had, had some kind of interesting questions about that. So when you're doing kind of the, the engineering tools that you're working on, do you do uh, the same, do you approach the development of those tools, and it, and it sounds kind of like you do, with the same rigor that, that you do for the shipping product because people don't buy Netflix for your engineering tools, right? I mean, I might actually, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, you're, you know, my mom would not... I uh, get a Netflix subscription to down, you know, be able to use uh, your know, deployment code. <laughs> the, the Netflix OSS projects are highly popular. <laughs> no, uh, that's people true. do like them. That's true. They, they, they don't popular. have to have a Netflix for a subscription yeah. for that. But yes, yeah. yeah but um, but you know what I mean. Like, do you approach the same? Do you, and it sounds. I mean, we were talking about this. That that uh, you just said it when a team brings you a tool, you may rewrite it and do, add the unit tests and all that kind of stuff. That's definitely an ideal situation that we, we, we definitely strive for, but sometimes we can be the worst offenders too. We don't always eat our own dog food, and that's we have to be reminded of that ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, there are areas of like Asgard, which deploys to the cloud, we have everything in the cloud, 
Asgard doesn't run in the cloud right now. Our Jenkins master <laughs> is not in the cloud. Like there are things that we also need to, to do to be good citizens in the cloud and with everyone in the company and stuff. I'd say it's best effort. We, we definitely try to do everything like everyone else, but we're not on those teams. It's hard to know even what kind of testing that they do per se. But as I think as we go forward, we definitely take the opportunities to be, honestly, as like a developer, if I'm not writing code or writing tests, if I go a week without doing that, I feel pretty bad. Like, no, I, just, I feel like, okay, now I'm a build person who knows Ant way too well, uh, or IV oh, resolution, yeah. or something yeah. like that. And we need people like that to help the other people that come in who don't know that. I, I get that that's a very important thing to have, but I feel better programming. And so I'm going to make time for it myself, um, for sure. Do you, does the tools team have a, like a product owner? Is, there, is, is that a concept that, you know, there's usually like a PM product yeah, owner? Yeah, we don't. Formally, it's something we've discussed that may be a good idea going forward, but um, right now, pretty much the owners of the specific tools are the product owners, and they're responsible for going out and evangelizing them amongst the different teams. We do have a monthly engineering tools review that we set up in probably the last year or so, where we'll go to new tools and new enhancements to the tools, and uh, amongst uh, you know anyone who wants to come along. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah, because that was the next thing is like, how, how do you generate kind of new ideas for tools? And how do you make sure that two people are kind of like working on kind of the exact same tool? And it sounds like that's sort of grassroots organized in your team. But, but you're saying actually that there may be room for kind of a product owner that kind of thinks more about these things and does so more. I should make it clear that when we talk about the team and the size of the team, we're talking about 12 people that do... All of Asgard for deployments, our continuous deployments, our EdEdit keeps track of the world, all the base AMI, all the builds, Jenkins, Perforce merge scripts, and a whole bunch of other areas. And it's all 12 people. So there's no room for a product manager, per se, uh, in a team that small. Mm -hmm. It would be weird to have uh, 12 people and then bring in like four product managers. Or for the oh, number of products sure. we have, I mean, goodness, <laughs> you'd have like eight product managers for a 12-person team. So, so there's a lot of, we have to take it upon ourselves to sort of drive each product because there's only two people working on any one of these tools. But so where you resolve sort of inconsistencies or duplicated work, is that, that kind of monthly meeting you were talking about where? That would be you one mean, for sure, but I don't. Between us and other teams or between ourselves? Both, really. So I think the, the thrust of the question was, like, do you have somebody that does, and I hate to use the term ivory tower because I don't think, but can turn into that, but somebody who sits there and is like, okay, we've got these 12 tools. I'm going to go spend most of my time actually outward facing. What are other teams? What are their, what do they need? What are they, and so they're not really just the one product owner for the one tool, but they are kind of making sure that there's some consistency among all the tools and then collecting new ideas. Is that somebody's responsibility, or is it more grassroots? It I, sounds like it's I, I think at Netflix, like I, I think my team especially, like as a consumer of the tools, like we are very proactive in letting them know when the yeah. tools don't meet our needs. It's <laughs> <laughs> very proactive in air quotes. Yeah. Or, <laughs> well, or they don't want to write it themselves, right? right. Like, yeah. oh, we got to waste a month of this. Maybe we can get to engineering tools to do it for us. Um, but we also engage with so many of the other teams. So it sounds know. like it's kind of natural. It's kind of natural artifact. Sure. Yeah. And uh, like definitely like we, my team definitely does like early beta or alpha access to certain things that they're, that your team writes. And it's like, yeah, we'll be on the cutting edge. We don't mind taking like alpha software. Like we understand the risk of taking it and we understand the tax of taking it, but it's the right thing to do. And <laughs> it beats us having to write it. So 
So, but the other angle would be the API team who's just, sometimes they're just going a million miles an hour and they just can't wait for us. They can't wait a day because they want it out there right now to see how it works. And the, they really will get the email and they're like, okay, I didn't hear back to you in 20 minutes. I'm going to write it all myself. Okay, great. Have a blast. You know, go for it. I mean, that's a clear, clear. We were going to do it, but they're just going to beat us to it. And maybe we come back around or maybe we use their stuff. And maybe then the, not. the funny thing is theirs, sometimes they'll write something and then my team will hit the same exact thing. And like you guys will actually tell us that, oh, the API team wrote a script to do this. And then we'll go take that also. And then eventually that all gets like, you know, you find that like 11 different teams have the same script running. It's like, okay, now we really need to support this somehow and have a migration plan off of some scripts that we chose to write it one afternoon to something more robust. So it does sound though, from a business perspective, that that's a cost Netflix has decided to bear which is maybe two teams write the same tool and we support that for eight months and they, but, but that's better than holding a team back and resu- you know, merging those ideas and then, and then having more, a more kind of formalized heavyweight. Right? Yeah, it's just, it's yeah. just a different cost decision. It, it just goes like, back to not gating, right? You shouldn't yeah. have one team gate another. And if they had to wait for us to do it, to any new build thing or new deployment thing, would be gating them. That, that just, it feels very non-Netflixy. It would right. feel weird right. if, yeah. if okay. they had to wait for us. You actually kind of spoke to this. It's like, are you looking at my notes? I, uh, there was a question about like, how do you, uh, when, when do you, when is a tool deemed ready for consumption by the rest of the development team? And it sounds like you said it yourself. That it's an alpha beta tool. And so when when you go to Justin, it's like, hey, can we use this tool? Do you just do a risk assessment? And say, well, we'll have a couple more engineers like pay attention to what's going on. Is that is that how that? That's generally how it goes, and it's not like a well, you can't use this until it's the you know, final one version or something like that. Well, I mean, and I think we, it's that freedom to cho- choose. We we like the freedom to early adopt because we also help set the direction mm-hmm. of where it should go. And if we get in there early enough, we kind of build a trust with you guys about like okay we actually know what we're talking about because we're using your tools every day right we probably use we probably use the tools more than you guys do absolutely <laughs> so, but the the trust that's built is that we know that the things we say aren't going to fall on deaf ears <clears throat> and the feedback that we give is valued and we'll actually see change happen like very quickly and so having that kind of top of tree early alpha of access kind of gives us confidence that we can iterate on a solution faster. And and it's, it's absolutely worth the feedback loop, right? We, we, we're really, definitely willing to give up some features for one team more than another if they're willing to work with us more. Um, absolutely. So you, you're saying that it, the request won't fall on deaf ears. I, I know in, in the past I've had the problem of we're a release engineering team and we're two or three people or we're 12 people where we're supporting a thousand people, whatever it is. And it's not, it seems like the requests fall on deaf ears because the channels of communicate, like we could just get bombarded, right? And we, so, so how do you actually manage that? Is it, do you actually, is it file a bug and manage it that way? And then you have a queue of things you kind of go through at that monthly meeting or how, how does that stuff not fall through the cracks? Because it's that can biggest, be a sore point of frustration. It's like those people aren't listening to me. It's like, no, it's just I'm, <laughs> I've got 400 engineers yelling at me every day. Our, right? our, it's our, lar- our biggest challenge, yeah. I say, as a team. I mean, if all we were doing is saying no all the time, time that isn't horrible because at least we're telling them, no, we can't do it, so you should do it yourself. Right. Um, right. Yeah, it, which is the best thing for us. If, right. if we I do, mean, all- there, there have been requests that I've made, and they'll be honest. They're like, that's a great idea, and we can't do it right now. <laughs> you should just do it. And it's like, okay, like. We'll go build it, and then if we prove that there's value in the thing we built and there's more and more adoption, then 
that's when uh, I guess we choose to like re kind of reevaluate what where this where this tool should live and should we be the, like should my team be the one supporting this or should inch tools be supporting this there's a lot of cutting edge stuff which is one of the other things that people come to us they just want the shiniest new thing I mean they really do that I think it's it's sincerely I see a lot of that at Netflix they're perfectly willing to try any new thing that we throw at them anything it's they're just happy to try it out which is I mean, really I, great I honestly think engineers can be the easiest sold on anything it's like <laughs> Look, this is going to save you like three hours a week. Okay, like <laughs> done. Done. Like, where do I sign up? Like, you don't need you don't need to tell me. Like, you know, you don't need to beat me over the head to save me time. Like, well, you know, it's interesting, right? Because when I think back about that, I've been in the I've been in this situation with with cultures that aren't as uh, positive and productive, and the relationship starts out like that. But then you kind of get swamped, and so you stop responding to your requests because you're swamped. Maybe you're mm -hmm. shipping bits, which is what you're expected to do as opposed to supporting engineers. And then it's like the engineer starts saying, well, those assholes over in the release engineer, you know, give a shit me, right? And that's where you get this tipping point of badness, right? It, but that really can't happen. So, and I'll explain why. And that, no, that's no, 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 that's what I'm saying. I've no, had no, that experience, oh, absolutely. right? And it doesn't sound, it sounds like it's structured here to have that not happen. Right. That goes to the back to the freedom responsibility, right? So if that team, they that team really is said, you need to get the service up, right? If you're the social team, you've got to get Facebook integration. No one's telling them how to implement it and or what tools to use. And they know they have to take responsibility for it. And if they come to us for something and we can't do it, it is solely on them and they get it. And that's that's where like you need the freedom responsibility across the board so that they don't come to us whining, why isn't this done? Why don't you guys it'd be like you know, we can say sorry a thousand times, it won't matter. It, they have to take responsibility for it. If the build is broken, I you know, some bit of the build just never took their use case into consideration, or I just had a regression and broke it. There, there's a little bit there's an onus on them to get it working. They have to. There's just a lot less finger pointing here. I, I think it'd be hard to fall into that rut. Uh, but you still have fingers, so it's not like they got cut off. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask a little bit about the Cloud Prize stuff, and those that, that got announced. And our nominations got announced <laughs> nominations last week. Nice yeah, so. yeah, so let's talk a little bit about those. Sure, sure. It's been going on for a, a while. I'm trying to remember when it started, earlier in the year. Yeah, April, something like April that. time, where we sort of announced that there'd be 10 categories that we're offering prize money for, $10,000 each, plus a trip to reInvent and $5,000 worth of Amazon credit um, to help us out with our open source projects um, in sort of a very broad sense. And the categories are relatively broad. Help us with performance. Help us, I think, what are some of the categories? <coughs> that people test, studying documentation. Mo another monkey. Yeah, yeah another monkey. monkey. Give us some <laughs> monkey ideas. Um, which I think it was a little amorphous for people because it was sort of all over the place, but we're just trying to help people spur working on our open source stuff to help with the you know help everyone else out there and mm -hmm. stuff um, and we sort of concluded the first round and awarded some nominations which included a cute little monkey that as you shake it, it makes weird sounds and they oh, all have t-shirts yeah, yeah. and that puts them in the final running so i think there's two to three nominees per category and that's going to be they'll be announced at at reinvent and they'll they'll win the prize money and we saw contestants from big companies like IBM, individual contributors from the Ukraine doing <coughs> hundreds of uh, pull requests to RxJava mm -hmm. um, all over the place. And I think there was even some criticism along the way about us trying to promote Amazon tools and stuff. But very few of these things were Amazon specific. You know, when you talk about the monkeys, one of the first things people did was port it to OpenStack or CloudStack and mm -hmm. port to other platforms because the message is still solid. Right. You know? 
Right. Well, and, those, and, and like patches accepted. That's the whole open source thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and those are all on the Netflix GitHub. All that's on, yeah, on GitHub, that's right? All yeah. Public. Yeah. Nice. Nice. So I, I'm sure EJ would like to know. So you do a lot of Java. So there's a lot of Ant. And whenever I know whenever I've had to deal with Ant, it's always made me cry a little bit. And so you're moving away from Ant, but you're not moving to Maven. And people might wonder why. Ah. And what are you moving to? <laughs> The, let me first preface it is this is in the category of sort of ivory tower, right? You give the example where we get ideas. No one was really coming to us, I mean, except for asking for Maven all the time. Every new employee comes in and goes, hey, I want Maven. And then we explain all these use cases about why not, and I can get into those. But this is a case where engineering tools has to look at it and go, there's just nothing, there's no good long runway for Ant Ivy. There are just too many problems we're seeing. We've got we to leapfrog out of this, and we've got to think a little bit long term. We still have to give value proposition and explain why we need to replace it with something else. It's a definitely de an interesting angle for our, our team and stuff. You could put that doc on GitHub of why not to you and then take pull requests from it. <laughs> <laughs> Open source that argument. <laughs> We've all heard the analogy that, like, I had a job and I started open pro open source project, now I have two jobs. Right, so right, right. Don't need any more yeah. open source projects or pull things to track pull requests and something. Um, Maven uh, absolutely has some very strong opinions associated with it and how they think you should build your jars. But we don't always just build jars. And sometimes we build jars that are good for public consumption, some are good for private consumption. And I think anyone who's used uh, Maven enough We'll know that there are upsides and downsides, and as long as you're willing to work around them, you can sort of make it work and stuff. I think coming from Ant and Ivy, what people were used to was sort of this infinite level of customization that also went past just building a jar, uh, which I know there's Maven plugins for to bring you a little bit further than that. Um, but we just have examples where Ivy was a better fit and trying to be compatible with it, right? So, you know, if we have hundreds of projects publishing in Ivy format, Trying to get Maven to consume those is a no-go. Well, there's just cases where we're using configurations in Ivy the way they're supposed to be. And there are many configurations, and they link to each other in different ways, and Maven can never consume it. So honestly, Maven just wasn't really an option out of the gate. So looking around, the only other game in town was Gradle. And very early on, we just had a very good relationship with Gradleware and Hans when he was getting started and stuff. He definitely likes a lot of the Netflix things, the freedom of responsibility and context and control. Um, you'll hear him and I and Carl Quinn talk a lot on the Java Posse roundup sessions about Netflix and Gradle and how we can do stuff like that. For me, it's a build tool I can write unit tests for, and so I'm very happy. So if I've, I've definitely had teams come to me who are early adopters of this, and they say, I got this weird problem, and I go, yep, you're right, and I should capture it, and I capture it as a unit test, and I go, now, good, now it's broken, now I can fix it, and I can get, get back and, to it and stuff. And that's an idea I've actually been sort of exploring with my clients around tests for your build stuff, because nobody writes tests for make files or see make files. They don't write tests for style. If you say we have a style guide, nobody tests that stuff. And it's like, well, why, why shouldn't we? Why wouldn't we? And I think part of it is, is release engineers for the longest time weren't traditionally thought of as developers. And of course, it, both of you being developers and coming from that background, you're like, well, of course, I'm going to capture that requirement as a unit test. So that makes but sense. It comes with the, we felt the pain, right? I've definitely made changes to our ant build system. And then it breaks. And I'm like, well, I couldn't, I had no way to test this. I don't have 100 builds I can play with to right. test it out. I just break, you know, when I break something, I break everyone in the company. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like Bruce can break a few customers. I break all the engineers right. You're the, here. A few million customers. Yes. You know? Yeah, and a few million customers. What is the, the most amazing man in the world, the most amazing builder? When, when I 
change the the ant scripts. I don't change them often, but when I do, I do. yeah. And I've done that too. I've done that. Like if you you if you've ever worked with some huge make based system, you change an MK file and you introduce some dependency that makes the build like double in time yeah. when you have a dependent you know dependent build. Yeah, we've all had that hair pulling exercise. You mentioned sort of kind of uh, uh, there's a lot of debate, uh, Maven Gradle. Uh, the other debate that there's a lot a lot of talk about is chef puppet configuration management versus baked potato that you <laughs> send up. And you guys do the baked potato, the baked AMI approach. I feel it is a build artifact. Right? I have, we have we've built code and here's our machine image and it's a build artifact that we can go back to and have no opportunity for it to be different later on. How we build that artifact is actually quite up in the air. And we know with the new, with our open source project, Aminator, you can use, we've had pull requests to add Chef to it, right? So there's a provisioning step. We all need to provision. If you provision our shell scripts, our puppet, our Chef, it doesn't really matter. I mean, Chef so does make it easier for us. But in the end, we do want to capture it, snapshot it, treat it like an artifact. Why you'd want to do it with your jars, but not with your actual machine images boggles me. I've talked to PHP developers who don't get the idea of a build artifact. And so pushing to the instance is all part of their flow. Right. Um, but when you're coming from a Java background or a, a build a binary, uh, why you wouldn't want to carry that all the way uh, down the chain. Um, it's, so for what do you do? use for provisioning? Do you, is it Chef Solar or is it Shell Scripts or is it? It's a combination of, uh, <coughs> of both. Of um, of yeah, well there's different levels of Aminator and the pieces we build. We try and build a base AMI which has a majority of what we'd want on there. And historically that was actually Shell Scripts. But what we're doing now is layering on top of that um, using Chef Scripts to pull to especially on the Ubuntu side. So we have a strong CentOS side. And as we try and roll out Ubuntu, um, we're doing that with Chef. But we're also then giving the consumers the ability. So most of the time we find the developer just wants to drop a war in a place in Tomcat and have it go. So most projects that are getting out there, they're thinking of it more like a platform as a service Heroku, just give me a war and my system will run. For the people who want to customize, um, when we bridge the gap between Red Hat based OS's and Ubuntu Debian based OS's, um, it doesn't make as much sense. So what we're going to go down the road of is write a chef script. If you're going to want to customize anything post war yeah. uh, install. Well, and release engineers, I think, always have love-hate relationships with shell scripts because, I mean, I've, I've made the Twitter joke as much as the next guy, but I spent probably a third of my career debugging or writing shell scripts because <laughs> it's the, the glue that you write stuff with. So, yeah. I This is just kind of a Netflix is awesome, and I don't think people know this, so I wanted to ask it. You you have a lot of this stuff and a lot of the service side on the cloud, but I remember asking Bruce, it's like, not all the content's sitting on S3 somewhere. That's that's not true, right? Or is it? And you just like have to know the magical URL. Well, I mean, I think there some of the statistics thrown around would be, you know, Netflix uses what, a quarter, 33 percent of the internet, yeah. you know, <laughs> on during peak travel kind of stuff. That glosses over a lot of how does the internet actually work. And if you actually look at how, hey, but it's a great statistic. It is a great statistic. <laughs> uh, you know, it sounds great on, on paper and stuff. Deals a lot with the back, uh, how the backbone works versus the last mile and stuff. And it's it's. It's hard to get into and explain for most people, but people get the concept of CDNs and having people serve up the data as close as possible. And that's all we're doing is serving up that data very close. I live in Santa Clara. My data is probably coming to me from <coughs> San Jose. You know, it's probably coming a few miles away. So the 33% is much more from the last mile to your house. Right. So, but I mean, a lot of people think, because there's so much talk about the, the service and then it's all on Amazon. It's like House of Cards episodes aren't sitting on S3 and you do a get. 
to some S3 bucket. Like, that's not how that works, right? No, right. Yeah, and that, that was just amazing. Because yeah, there is this perception that when people oh. talk about Amazon and Netflix's use of it, like, everything is is on S3, and then episodes of stuff like Airwolf that nobody watches except for me are on Glacier. Like, no, that's not <laughs> that's not how it works, right? There's there's actually the, the social and the service and the presentation layer is kind of separated from where the actual content is living, and that's kind of all over the place. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Br Bruce, you live in that space a lot yeah, more. Yeah, I live in that off. space. Um, like, in, we do use S3 for, like, encoding ops, mm -hmm. and so when we get these, uh, like, massive HD... HD, blobs. 100 gigabyte files that we need to encode, like, we need to use S3 uh, for that. And right? you use S3 storage and compute to do that task and then get it back? Right. And then awesome. from S3, we'll actually deploy it. We need to deploy it onto our CDN uh, or the Netflix CDN so it can actually be served to customers. Gotcha. Right? Okay. So no customer will actually hit S3. Right. Yeah. Right. Nor will it necessarily come back to our data center. Right, so I mean, I know a lot of people are scared about the cloud, and oh, the cloud could disappear tomorrow, and where would my stuff go? Our stuff is all up in the cloud. You know, when you, you know, there are recovery plans available and stuff, but in general, you know, when you talk about Cassandra, that's out in the cloud, you know, and so yeah, yeah, great. Well, so I have a couple of last questions for all of you. What I'm assuming you all eat your own dog food and watch Netflix and have your Netflix profiles. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask, what is the favorite, what's your kind of guilty Netflix pleasure? What's the favorite thing that you <laughs> like to watch on, on Netflix? Uh, I'll buy you guys some time. So the, uh, when new employees start here, an email goes out to a very broad audience to say there's someone new at Netflix and this is what they do, maybe some hobbies, but what are your favorite shows and TV shows? You know, so we all get a little sampling of what new employees you know, like and watch and stuff. And there's, some are really just the obvious choices, and they just that's just the cop out and stuff. Right. The interesting ones where people admit the really just weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I love House of Cards. Congratulations! Um, I've been meaning to watch actually the the. Um, I've been really getting Orange is the New Black. That's, oh yeah, yeah. I haven't I haven't gotten to that one yet. I've been uh, meaning to watch the British version, which hmm. it suggested. House of Cards. Yeah, after I finished it. There's some interesting scene for scene, exactly yeah. the same yeah. thing going on. So when you see one, you see the other, and it makes yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm being disloyal because I'm British, but I prefer the US version. Yeah. Oh! <laughs> well, it's funny too because I had the same thing. I was going, the reason I didn't get to the British version of uh, House of Cards was I was going through uh, The Office, which also mm. has the. The, uh, the, the UK version of The Office is absolutely better than the US. <laughs> really? No contest. <laughs> so I finished House of Cards, I finished Orange is the New Black, both awesome. Uh, we, Me and my wife most recently finished Revolution. Oh, how is that? Oh, okay. that, so, that we get into that a lot at work, because you hear about someone watching a show, and we'll all talk about it. Right. That's, yeah, that's yeah. the kind of cooler conversations we have around right. here. Oh, so then the other question I have to ask is, what is the thing on Netflix that... So uh, sometimes you, you know, you'll, you know, you'll see like some stuff in your profile, and it's like your significant other watched something, and you're like, really? Really? <laughs> uh, and I sort of spilled the beans. I said I watched Airwolf. <laughs> a few times. Um, that's not actually the most embarrassing thing I've ever watched. It did spur me to go watch it. Yeah. I made myself about eight episodes in Daryl after Just you posted that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll admit that the worst thing that I watched on Netflix, we went, we were out like partying on a Saturday and I came back and I was like, I have to stay up for a little while. So you're like, just whatever. And you're searching for weird things. And I actually did watch three or four episodes of the like mid 90s half live Mario half cartoon <laughs> like Mario you know that? show like oh yeah you have that because you've seen it and here's the thing that I hate about the suggestion API is that once you watch one of those things 
it's like, do you want to watch you Teenage like Mutant Ninja Turtles? You're like, no, I was just, I was really blasted that one night. And I, I want to be, I want to delete that title. So I got to ask, what, what is the, what is the one embarrassing Netflix thing you've watched that you wish you could delete from your profile? Well, before you we had profiles, my wife used to just watch all the historical dramas and whatnot. I like call the midwife. Stuff oh yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And then people would put likes on my Facebook page saying, "Hey, you watch <laughs> midwife? That's awesome." <laughs> <laughs> what? I never heard of this show. But now we have profiles, so right, that doesn't right. happen anymore. I did, that was pretty funny, though, when, when, when Carl came up in the middle of the day that he was watching My Little Pony. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was sharing the account, his, his daughter had it, and she had been watching it. At, uh... Actually, I got a funny story about, about that. Uh, I was dealing with a production issue, and for some reason, like, certain episodes of SpongeBob weren't weren't working and so <laughs> I to, you know like I any good engineer you first try to reproduce the problem and so like I kept on playing Spongebob over and over and then I go home and my wife's like why are you watching Spongebob <laughs> <laughs> all right you're not getting out of this most embarrassing Netflix there is a long list of embarrassing Netflix things uh, to, to be had for sure that's a, that's a good question watch it a lot um I'll go real quick. My guilty pleasure is has been Alpha's season two. Okay. Alpha's season one was terrible, <laughs> and I don't know why I kept watching it. And then season two you came out, through. and then I was like, well, season two can't be worse than season one. <laughs> and so I started watching season two, and last weekend I finished season two, and I was like... Oh gosh, I finished season two of Alphas. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are certainly shows where it's like you go to the, the country buffet and you're like, this chicken is horrible, but it's a buffet, so I just, I've got to power through, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> All right. Oof. One show, man. Come on. I, 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 I admitted the Mario show. That's pretty bad. The 80 one, 80s one always sound bad. Some of them are just so bad, the 80s shows. But then you find one that still holds its own. And Quantum Leap, I think, was in there, too. But I didn't start watching it because I was watching... Oh, I was watching Voyager. I'm, I ditched Voyager for a long time. And I think we got MacGyver. You ever watched MacGyver? Oh, oh I, I love MacGyver. MacGyver. No, well, great. Well, now you that's not up a guilty. Weekend, that's not a guilty pleasure. That. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Enduring 101. Yeah, yeah. You have to watch that. Like, the audience is, right? Yeah. I think we had a conference room here. It's the hardest conference room to find here. I, I really don't think most people are capable of finding it. Barbarella. Uh, yeah. But I've still have never seen this movie. And so I got, you know, hey, it's, it's on a conference room. I've seen the picture. I've made it there. So I watched it. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Now this is in my profile. And it's been posted to Facebook. And I wish I could take it back. Is that going to be a feature that we can get in someone's queue, like deleting shows from your... It's a perennial hack day project. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so we have hack day projects that come up. Uh, a hack day where you know we, we dedicate to, to hacks on the site and stuff. And deleting stuff from your profile is, is a very common one that comes up. <laughs> All different ways of doing it. The other one I will beg for is profile migration. If you split <laughs> a profile because all of the Star Trek episodes that I randomly watched are now not on a profile I can get to. So... But that's my own. That too has come up during Hack Day. All <laughs> sorts of nice drag and drop, you know, uh, yeah, move from here yeah. to here to this right, profile. Right, right, Except, yeah, certain things are the trash, the, the trash of shame. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Someone did the boss button on Hack Day where if you're sitting in your office reading, watching Barbarella, whatever, and your partner comes in, you just hit the boss button and it starts playing a PBS documentary. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would that be a nice, a nice boss button, Netflix boss button. Yeah. Justin Gareth Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. And we'll be back in a moment to have a show.
back to Shift Show. So tonight uh, we're doing DevOps Dear Abby. We actually put out the call pretty late today. And so we've got a couple questions from the internets and we'll be answering them like we always do. So uh, the first question tonight comes from, and I know I'm going to mispronounce this and I'm sorry, but Zeppi on Twitter. He asks, despite having worked maintenance for years on the legacy code bases at BigCo, I don't see why people keep picking on quote-unquote enterprise developers, shouldn't we approach code with the assumption that everyone did their best given the circumstances such as culture, skills, deadlines, etc.? So, EJ. Yeah, it just feels like yeah, nobody, nobody's picking on enterprise devs. I've, I've seen all sorts of rules and regulations and tasks assigned to, you know, un, I want to say like the wrong people and they've got the job done and maybe it needs some reworking or refactoring, but yeah, I, I don't think anyone's picking on them. Like, I don't know. Not me. Okay, Seth. So I do understand what, from at least one perspective what he's talking about. There's there's a tendency of especially small, ultra-hip startups, the kind who hire rock stars and engineers to totally like slam on enterprise dev. And I'm going to say typically it's because those those people who are at these like early stage startups or whatever typically aren't people who have actually built something that has made it to enterprise. They're like usually flipping companies or you know stuff like that where it's just like, hey, let's just get a bunch of VC, run with it, and we'll make fun of enterprise devs. Uh, since I've come from, bo- I've done both worlds. I find it silly to make fun of enterprise devs, especially when you go into a position where you're actually going to maybe be selling your software to enterprise devs at some point or get them to use <laughs> it. Um, so I don't think it's. I do know what he's kind of referring to, or he or she, I didn't actually uh, qualify that um, by the name, but uh, it's kind of a, uh, there, is a I, I, there is a mentality. You don't have to expect that people did their best. I mean, you, I mean, you can believe that. That's a, that's a totally personal thing, but I think code can always be improved on, even in the enterprise, and I feel that a lot of the bad rep enterprise code gets is because people don't maintain it. You have one-offs and busted code that just sits around forever, and nobody pays off technical debt. And that is that is a cultural problem at any institution, whether an enterprise or not. So if you are getting, if you feel like you're getting picked on, there may be a, like a, a, a nugget of truth in there where maybe you should actually look at your code and see what you can do to maybe fix it. But I don't think anyone should be picking on enterprise devs, but I do understand the kind of sentiment. Yusuf? I think I understand where, where Zeph is coming from. You know, I've, I've worked with uh, developers and startups and sort of enterprise uh, shops. And, you know, depending on how long the developer's been in an enterprise shop, they may tend to use the same tools. A really good example of that is uh, in the Java world these days, it's kind of frowned upon to use big heavyweight containers Java application containers, I'm not going to name any. But so there's a lot of people who still, you know, use that or, or use those type of tools. But I don't think that it's a reason to, you know, look down upon enterprise developers. But the consensus that I hear from a number of people that do look down on enterprise developers is that they're fixated on very old tools and they don't want to kind of look at different options. It's kind of, uh, and, and again, there's two, a number of different ways of looking at it. You could always say, if it's not broke, don't fix it. But you may also want to say, well, maybe we could look at this new, I don't know, tool or design pattern, or for lack of a better word, you know, some some new strategy of, of approaching things. But again, requirements are very different in the enterprise world than they are in kind of a, even mid-size or startup companies. Sasha? Well, I don't know that I want to pick on enterprise devs so much as rescue them from their soul-sucking corporate black hole of, of emptiness. 
you know, it's not enterprise devs, I think, that are the problem, but the corporate personality. I'd have, I guess I'd have to know more about the context of those tweets, because I don't really know, but I'm not even sure I can actually throw anything out there as to why people would be down on enterprise devs, so much as I have a lot of feelings about people who work in the enterprise, because I used to be in one, and people just don't understand how smart they are and how much advantage big companies take of the fact that people are afraid to leave them. And so I think they're all beat down and uh, afraid to leave. And they shouldn't be. So I, I think it would be... It's easy for me to see how uh, developers who work at a big enterprise software company could feel picked on because we talk a lot about stodgy enterprise companies. We have news and views almost every week. We talked about Microsoft a couple weeks or last episode. And we, we kind of... There's this implicit stodgy and resistant to change is bad as a value judgment. And we ascribe those values to enterprises and then we, then people assume that, well, if I work there, they must be ascribing those traits to me. So I can totally understand why people feel like that. I would say, you know, I've seen some sins committed against CPUs at just horrible code, unmaintainable code, undeployable code at startups, just as much as at uh, enterprises. And I think the difference is, is that at startups or smaller companies, the requirements and the trade-offs are more transparent. You know, when you're making a trade-off with 10 developers uh, and everyone sort of knows that this piece of the code is crappy or they all have all bought into that, even if they don't agree with it, they at least accept, well, you know, and they have it on some list to, to go fix, everyone can sort of give each other a break about that. But at enterprises, you know, maybe you're using some component that's written by some other team, you don't know what trade trade-offs they had, and so it's easy to think that that code is crappy and therefore think that, that you know, it's a valid to sort of ascribe all these negative qualities. And then, of course, this is even worse for third party when we look at installers for enterprise software or something like that. We don't know the trade-offs that were made. I think Sasha hit on, though, probably the most astute point is that, uh, and, and um, Seth, you brought this up too, like the culture part uh, of enterprises is very different, and it's largely business-driven. Um, I can remember when I did a lot of enterprise work that you couldn't even talk about a new tool until you put together a PowerPoint presentation and had a meeting with three or four teams, none of whom were, I mean, you know, everybody had to be informed and consulted instead of being allowed sort of the space to to make their own decisions. And there are reasons for that. I, you could debate whether or not they're good. But I think that's why. I think it's because it's easy to see sort of uh, the end sausage without knowing the the sort of decisions that went into making it, and so it's easy to sort of chastise it. Whereas uh, you know smaller organizations, those decisions are more transparent, and usually they're trying to grow or execute on some business needs. So in such a, a visceral way that that they are, you you see their market share increasing. So it's easy to be like, oh, they're obviously successful, so their software's great, you know. So, next up is actually sort of a related question. It comes from Steve Moroski. I hope I pronounced that right, Steve. Um, who asked, in a similar vein, why are ops guys in primarily Windows environments looked down upon or feel looked down upon in the DevOps community? Very often references will be, oh, and on Windows, like the ops guys running Windows wouldn't be expected to be as professional as their compatriots on the Nix side of things. How can a primarily Windows ops guy fit into this DevOps community? So, Seth. 
so I have I have a lot of experience in this in this domain specifically because game studios are like ex- almost exclusively Windows on the development side, and then if they decide to if it's the server component, it's almost exclusively Linux. And there's a lot of there's a lot of back and forth. I think one of the big things is that. I mean, I even feel this way, and I try and catch myself, is that, like, when I think of people running Windows as a server, as in, you know, it is not as not like an Active Directory box or anything else, but, like, as, you know, running some kind of application traffic, there's a there's an gr- awesome graphic out there that you guys can find on the Internet that shows the system calls when you go through IAS versus the system calls when you go through Apache, and it's spaghetti. So it's it's not as much a function of the professionalism of the employee. Some of the best people I know, and I mean even like the, the number of Windows tricks I can pull out of my hat are surprise a lot of people. It's more of as an ops person, you should know them all. I think is really is is kind of the, the overriding feeling that I have. So as an ops person, like I could I'm equally comfortable on Windows, Mac, Linux, just because that's you should be able to know be able to navigate those differences. And I find that a lot of the, I guess, uh, tra- I don't want to say traditional, but a lot of the Windows engineers that I have encountered who are ops guys never really do anything else other than just Windows. Whereas I find that, and you can get that with Linux guys as well. It's, it can be just as bad, but I find that it's, again, this is my own subjective experience. The Windows guys are going to be Windows guys until the end of time and are likely not going to change. They may have dabbled with Linux a little bit. They may be even a little bit comfortable, but they're not using it and they're not leveraging it. And that's kind of, I think, where that feeling comes from a lot because you don't, there's, there's such a limited ecosystem on Windows. I mean, React doesn't run on Windows. I mean, we don't do that because there are dependencies we have uh, that that won't compile on Windows without an extensive amount of effort that doesn't make it worth it. So it's not it's, sometimes it's not about looking down, but sometimes just the the tools that you need are, just aren't available, and that's what makes it a bit difficult to kind of you know in certain in certain lights take the take people who are you know like I'm a Windows Ops guy take them seriously. But I don't think I think that's more of a legacy artifact that people need to kind of get over and you know treat people with respect kind of in the same like same thing with the enterprise like if you're just saying that just to say that to make yourself feel superior then great for your you haven't actually accomplished anything go write something cool all right yusuf uh i mean i think uh it, you know unfortunately it kind of comes with the uh, with the ter- territory that said you know looking down upon um anybody because they work with xyz technology uh, it's not appropriate but i think um a lot of folks out there tend to think of Microsoft Ops folks, guys and gals, as you know, people who just uh, click their way through everything, which is wrong. Um, I happen to know a lot of Windows admins who are PowerShell experts. They they know the Windows registry um, inside out. They do pretty much everything on either in PowerShell or on the command line. So. But I think there's just this stigma, stereotype that oh, all the Windows Ops people, uh, admins are, you know, clicking their way through their job, which is is wrong. That's not that's not true at all. So um, maybe I don't know. Maybe it needs more education, or you know, people being a little less judgmental. Yeah, Sasha. Well, so the first thing I ever learned was the first things I ever learned was Windows support and Windows certs. I mean, I started out in telephone support years ago and so so my experience did start there and then I branched out to Linux and so I think that I speak from experience too and I think that people who do Windows things tend to be uh, and this is not for everyone but I think that their experience tends to be more limited unless they end up deep dive 
into a lot of the different Windows products and really understand them at a deep level. And I think a lot of Windows admins don't ever do that. Uh, I know some, and that's my opinion of some of the ones that I know. I know other ones who are amazing who just picked up PowerShell and were like, woo, this is awesome. And I'm like, you should try Ruby. And they're like, why? <laughs> I'm like, because it's even more awesome. But uh, I think that Windows folks tend to really not want to leave Windows. And it feels limiting to me. And uh, I think it's unfortunate, and I part of this too, and I think this I'm going to say this for everybody, is that most of us don't think Windows are fun to work on, right? I mean, none of us think it's fun, as far as I know. Uh, and so Visual we Studio don't, 2012 for life. We don't understand people who want to work on Windows because we don't think it's fun. We think it's horrible. And so we do it because we have to, but honestly, I'm not a great Windows admin. I can cope, but when I have to figure something out, it takes me a lot longer than a real one. But on the other hand, I'd rather not be there at all. So, you know, it, I just think it's a, all of those different things. We don't, we think it's boring. We think it's not fun, un, unlike all of the different things that you can do in a Unix environment. And as far as I can tell, a lot of folks don't ever deep dive. I mean, the ones who do are amazing, but there are a lot who don't. EJ? Yeah, there's pretty much nothing I can say that hasn't already been said, but I think a bunch of us, our experience with, you know, win Windows, admin, that people is, you know, have you restarted your machine? And that's sort of, at this point in our careers, sort of like asking us if we've checked the blinker fluid. I, I, and then, then you meet somebody who, like a QA engineer that has a real handle on PowerShell, and your mind is blown. You're like, I didn't know you could do that with Windows. So yeah, oh, I, think, I, I think a bunch of us, our experience with the Windows admins aren't, you know, we, we haven't seen the incredibleness there, but when we see in around automation or QA, we, we see what can be done. So maybe there's a little bit of frustration there. Sorry, the last thing I want to say, and I'm sorry I forgot to say this, is that any product that requires you to reboot the box to, to fix a problem is not production worthy. Yes. Oh, my God. I wanted to say the same thing, and I'm glad I'm sorry. I dated a guy for a while who was uh, a Windows uh, my, uh, SQL admin, and I was like, how can you take that seriously? You have to reboot it when it doesn't work. No, I see right. that. So I think a lot of the sort of, again, implicit kind of feeling looked down upon, honestly, is a, a baggage of history. And so what I mean by that is I, and you've heard the panel talk about it, for the longest time, the entire Microsoft ecosystem was designed around certifications and certifying people to do work. And there were a lot of, like, becoming... You know, and I, I'm talking like mid to late 90s into the 2000s. I mean, Microsoft's kind of core business back in the day with certifying people to use their entire ecosystem, getting developers into their ecosystem was part of their business requirements and, and their business strategy. And so you could have, and so, you know, it, it, it's kind of like public education in some ways where it's like, well, you know, if Johnny doesn't read in the second grade, well, I, I, I got to get new people in, so I'll send him off to third grade and he still can't read. And you would get, because uh, it was a business, you would see people getting certifications that probably shouldn't have had them, but large companies that tended to use Microsoft software because they could afford it would find a place for them somewhere in the company. And then if you meet enough of those people that say, well, I'm a Microsoft certified systems engineer, and you talk to them about like concepts and their solution to most things is, well, just reboot it, because that usually works. That's going to give you whether or not it's fair or not. It's going to give you kind of a sense of what everyone is like. And then the other thing that's a historical baggage is that Microsoft really pushed back against open source in a very serious way for a long time and kind of threw a lot of mud and tried to really devalue 
a lot of what open source, the, the ethos of it was about. I mean, this started back with Bill Gates' letter to the homebrew club way back in the day. And so when you see this sort of DevOps culture of sharing and putting your code on GitHub and using these tools and, and incorporate, continuously incorporating improvement, when you have an organization that comes along and says, well, we don't do open source. And then it's like, oh, well, we have Microsoft shared source, but you can't really fix anything or you can just look at the source code. It's been two decades of pulling hair and teeth with Microsoft to get them to accept that open source isn't going away and is increasingly moving in that direction for commoditized stuff. I think they get it now. I also think it's kind of too late. And then also, again, historically, you couldn't get a use, you can't get Visual Studio uh, for free. Um, you can now get the Express editions of Visual C for free, and you can sort of kind of make your fumble your way through compiling stuff on Windows. Um, but it's a pain, and no one wants to do it. So like nobody does that. As opposed to you know, I can remember downloading Slackware for free, uh, or getting the eight gazillion floppy disks and installing it when I was a teenager, and that was super exciting to me. And to be able to like get that installed on my third try because I screwed it up the first couple of times and boot that machine was such an intoxicating experience as, you know, a teenager and then like a 20-something. Going through that process, it, it really is enticing, and it's harder to have that experience on Windows because it's harder for teenagers to get a copy of Visual Studio without a bunch of questions or pirating it or whatever. And uh, so I think a lot of these kind of cultural values, again, uh, and I agree with you, that uh, Steve, that, that I think... We sort of it's 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 a prejudiced judge, judgment, and I I mean that in a very uh, fundamental form of the word. We're prejudging Windows people, uh, and I've had the same experience with people who can rock PowerShell and know the register settings and know all of the details. And and you look at them and you're kind of like, wow, that's awesome. You have to put up with a lot of shit that the rest of us don't in terms of like technology stuff because certain things like the rebooting all the time just seem to kind of work on. On Linux, so I know those people exist. They are starting to come out in the DevOps spaces. In terms of, I know Puppet Comp had a couple of talks that were Windows specific about use on Puppet, and I was surprised. I learned some stuff I didn't know about Chocolatey, which is like a app-like repository for Windows software. So my mind was blown. So yeah, I I, I think it's a hard problem to solve, uh, and I think it's mostly due to the history of how Microsoft structured its business. Uh, and I think I don't know. I don't know that they'll ever realize in a meaningful way because now they're all focused on mobile, which you can be closed again in the mobile space because of telecom constraints. So I don't know that, I don't know what happened. Uh, and I, but I agree. And I, I, I feel, I, I certainly feel for you, Steve. So I want, I want to add two, two things real quick. Um, sure. I, you, you talked about the certifications and as somebody who was part of that, that system for a bit, I think part of the problem is Microsoft, uh, you kind of touched on it, but they cultivated a culture of mediocrity. It was can you pass the exam? Meant you could you could be a an opt you could call yourself a you know a Windows Server admin. Now that just means you went to a crash course and passed an exam that you basically paid them to pass you, right. uh, which is terrible. Um, the other wrong thing is incentives. Power, yeah, exactly. Wrong incentives. Like when I remember learning more installing Gentoo and failing miserably the first few times than I did at all during my MC my MCP course. Um, and then the other thing was, we've talked about, we touched on PowerShell. PowerShell is relatively new. That was a oh, Windows right, 7 true. thing. Yep. Um, so before then, you had Batch, hmm. and you had, like, you had a Windows script, and you had VB script, and you had these really limited tools. And then PowerShell came along and was like, hey, here's a real language that allows you to, like, great, like, 
I actually am a PowerShell fanboy because I it was the first thing that allowed me to use Windows sensibly. So I think those those, those are just two points that I want to add there, um, especially from my experience that yeah, have made that have changed things for the better. Uh, at least they've kind of dropped the cert stuff a lot. Like they're not pushing that nearly as hard as once was happening. Yeah, and I'll say one last thing too is, is that Microsoft had a culture for a very long time of like compatibility. And and they still do, I think. And and you know, if they release something that had a bug, I you see this in the developer documentation. Uh, Raymond Chen's blog has great stories about this, where you know you could call a function with a certain flag that would enable the buggy behavior. And the reason they did that is because that's what large customers, large enterprises wanted, because they wanted the buggy behavior because their app that was deployed all over the place would fail without it. So when you can never change things like the separator for a path, whether it's a forward slash or a backslash, and you made that decision just as a business reason to go against the rest of the industry with that was using forward slashes, and you can never change that even though it makes tons of sense to do so, or you can't change anything because that's part of the market that you're supporting, it makes it very difficult for people to get excited because they're dealing with, Seth, you brought it up, batch files. Because, yeah. right, that are like... Because that's what they have, and that's what's compatible and known to run, and you're just like, it's glorified basic, not even. It's horrible. So. Well, it's, I mean, you mentioned the, the compatibility thing. It's they, they had the, the kitchen sink approach. You know, right. Windows 7 will still run Windows, I think Windows, definitely Windows 95 binaries, maybe run Windows 3.1 even. Yeah. Like crazy backwards yeah. compatible, which is I actually think instead of that's respect. Like, See, and here's yeah, the thing: that's, that's actually respect respectable. Yes. But this is why people don't get like right. super excited about. Right, it's not and, exciting. And, and people will say this: pause the POSIX standard is how old, and and they're right. But you still see yeah. anyway. Sorry, well, like, so I, I think the upshot, Steve, is we we feel your pain, and we're sorry if we've ever made fun of Windows developers who know what they're doing, and Windows ops people who know what they're doing. But it probably won't stop anytime soon. <laughs> yep. All right. So, from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From Minneapolis, this is Sasha signing off. From Austin, this is Seth signing off. From Brickett, Massachusetts, this is EJ signing off. And we'll see you all in a couple of weeks. Bye.